I grew up in Washington, D.C. in the 80s, and four out of five playground fights ended before they started. Oh, there was plenty of trash talk, name-calling, threats, even pushing. But when it was time to throw down, most kids didn't really want that busted lip. This week, we saw that same story play out in the multi-billion dollar world of tech. Apple was going to teach Qualcomm a lesson. Qualcomm wasn't scared. Yesterday, minutes into their high-stakes court battle, the Giants settled. Welcome to Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. I am John Fort from CNBC at the NASDAQ market site overlooking Times Square. With me to break down the most important stuff happening in tech this week, Casey Newton of The Verge. Casey, what's up? Not much. How's it going, John? I am good. I'm good. So I want to know who you had in this fight between Apple <laughs> and Qualcomm. Now that it's not going to happen, tell me who you really thought yeah. was going to win. You know, look, I, I can't claim to be uh, an expert on 5G modems, but I do know that Apple is one of the very richest and most powerful companies in the world. And so when they started rattling their sabers at Qualcomm, I have to admit, I thought they were going to come out on top. Yeah, I, I mean, I, and Wall Street did too, and you can tell that because Qualcomm's stock popped like more than 20% when you combine yesterday and today. But I'll tell you, I had Qualcomm in this. I called them the Tom Brady of patent litigation, if you can have <laughs> those two things together. Because everybody's always coming for them because they make a lot of money off of the patents they have. They kind of led the way in 3G, 4G. They were threatening to do it in 5G. They always seem to figure out a way out of this bind, right? Yeah, that, I think that's exactly right. They're clearly very effective at using their patent portfolio to get what they want, you know. And I think in the early days of this case, the whole thing felt like kind of a shakedown on Qualcomm's behalf. I think that Apple sort of rankled at how much <laughs> of, uh, you know, a percentage they had to pay for every iPhone that they were selling. But it seems like between, uh, you know, the, the legal case that Qualcomm put together and then the collapse of a modem building effort at Intel, uh, Apple was put in a bind that it, it couldn't get out of uh, in the near, the near term. But let's, let's be honest here. One man's shakedown is another man's innovation, right? I mean, Apple is yeah. the company of the thousand-plus-dollar phones, of the App Store, where you got to pay that toll to kind of be in there, and other companies are upset. Netflix is upset, but not so upset that they're not going to raise prices on people who are hooked on their shows, too. I mean, it seems like somebody could complain about a shakedown from any one of these companies that's in a dominant position in something. Yeah, I mean, there are no saints in capitalism, right? Uh, <laughs> but, you know, uh, I, I think it, it has uh, clearly worked out in Qualcomm's favor, and, you know, the result is we will all probably continue to have to pay more than $1,000 for a phone <laughs> if, if we want a really good one in the, in the coming years. Now... I thought about Apple versus Samsung from a few years back. Um, I, I was in San Jose in the courtroom covering that trial. To me, I mean, that one went to blows. Like, they went through the whole trial. Uh, Apple won that one. That, to me, was a more natural fight. I mean, Apple hated Qualcomm. Tim Cook talked a really good game. He talked some serious, you know, basketball court trash about Qualcomm, but I never really bought it. I never really believed it. Yeah. The two companies felt a little too similar to me. 
Yeah, and I, and I also think that Apple was probably playing for time a little bit, right? Because you, you have two things going on at the same time. On one hand, you've got Intel building up uh, a 5G modem that I think Apple had really high hopes for, right? They thought they could get a great modem for a much better price. What happened yeah. to Intel? Because a few hours <laughs> later, a few hours after this case gets settled, I get the email right, from Intel saying, oh, you know what, we're out of the 5G smartphone modem business. And my first thought was, were they so much counting on that Apple business because they didn't have a deal with Qualcomm that the, the numbers didn't work without it? And then my second thought was, well, wait a minute, did Apple know that Intel couldn't deliver a 5G smartphone modem and that forced them to do this deal? I don't know either way, but, uh, but it was kind of funny to me to get that email just the same day later on in the night. Oh, yeah, the, the timing was great. I mean, I, I sort of suspect that if Apple thought that Intel was about to deliver a great 5G modem at a better price than it could get from Qualcomm, uh, Intel would still be in the 5G modem business. But everything we've heard coming out of Intel over the past few months has just been that they are having a terrible time coming up with a modem as good as Qualcomm's. And so I think once they realized that Apple wasn't going to be their customer anymore, it was time to just throw up their hands and say, you know, we've got to go find another business. Bottom line, is this the first time that, uh, you know, Tim Cook's considerably strong trash talk game ha has not delivered? I would say maybe the second time after Apple somehow got charged with like collusion and selling ebooks, mm. right? It was like, mm. you know, in a world where Amazon d dominates book sales, somehow Apple got painted a a as the villain and all of that and wound up having to settle with the Justice Department. But yeah. certainly like a very rare loss for uh, Apple, legally speaking. I still blame Steve Jobs for that one because that, that had a long <laughs> yeah. legacy. Let's move on. The IPO yeah. rush continues this week with a pair of highly valued tech unicorns expected to go public tomorrow, both Pinterest and video conferencing service Zoom set the price tonight ahead of Thursday's first trade. Um, you know, you take a look at the numbers on these, and we'll get a little wonky here. We'll get a little financial. Um, it looks like Zoom's valuation, let's see, if they're at around $10 billion when they start trading, we don't know where they will, but maybe about that. Their revenue over the past four quarters they've reported is around $335 million. $10 billion is a pretty rich valuation. On the other hand, yeah. Pinterest, but they're profitable. Pinterest, also around $10 billion, but uh, their revenue closer to $800 million, but they're not profitable. So, Casey, once again, yeah. five years from now, which one do you think is the bigger standout story of the two? Oh, man. So I have, I have so much trouble seeing a world where Zoom is still an independent company in five years because at the end of the day, a video conferencing business just feels like it could tuck into any number of other enterprise mm. companies, right? Like at a certain point, you're, you're going to have penetrated the market uh, unless they have some crazy like rabbit in a hat that they're going to pull out in the next five years. I, I don't see how this company stays independent. But what, so about, I think, what about Pinterest? Yeah. I mean, you could see that uh, yeah. Google already tried to buy it years back. This would fit in very nicely with Amazon, given their retail juice and Amazon's moves into advertising lately. I mean, is one really that much more likely to get taken out than the other? I think that Pinterest has more potential, although I am somewhat skeptical of it. Um, it has been extremely slow to monetize. Uh, they have a culture there that uh, seems to 
uh, be somewhat skeptical of growth in a lot of ways, honestly. You know, at the same time, Pinterest is still a lot better uh, at some things than Google is, right? Like, if I were going to go buy a new couch tomorrow, you search couch on Google, you're just going to see a bunch of SEO garbage. You search couch on <laughs> Pinterest, you're going to find a couch you might actually want to put in your house. So, like, there is money to be made there, and I think the question is just how good is Pinterest going to be at, at getting it? You know what I like about Pinterest, though? I like how Ben Silberman, the founder, CEO, is not like hopped up on HGH and testosterone. It's like we got this yeah. new CEO era now. Ben Silberman, he's yeah. kind of like soft-spoken. He's thoughtful. Like I feel like whenever we sit down, he's going to really teach me something. Like nothing against yeah. Steve Ballmer. He and I, you know, we got along and everything. But that dude, every time, he scared me. Like, he was about to jump across the table and throttle me just saying <laughs> hello. And it feels to me like we've moved out of this mode where believing, you know, success equals aggression, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, look, this may be a case where slow and steady wins the race, right? Like, you're exactly right about Ben Silverman. Ben is, like, basically universally beloved in Silicon Valley. We used to live in the same neighborhood. I'd see him getting coffee. Like, he, he has a much more of a man of the people <laughs> he gave vibe you change than you for the meter, expect. right? It seems like, you yeah. know, when you're walking your he, dog, he scooped the dog's poop for you. That's right. He is that person, right? And um, and I think that you can really see his values expressed in the business that Pinterest is. And you know, if you're a, an investor, I'm sure you're frustrated that they didn't launch, you know, some of the ad tools that they did earlier, or maybe promoted them more aggressively. But you know, we're also in a moment where there's this cultural reckoning over social media. What is the internet doing to our minds, to our democracies? And I think Pinterest has tried to find a path for themselves where they can yeah. avoid some of those really tough discussions and put themselves in a position where people are still going to feel good about using the product. And so maybe that goodwill will sort of carry them farther as a company. Nobody thinks scrapbooking is ruining the country. I mean, that's one thing <laughs> yeah. I haven't heard. It's like yeah, too many wedding photos being cut out and who needs right. that many flower arrangements? Pinterest, they've managed to avoid that so far. Let's move on. Let's move on to Netflix. They were out with yeah. earnings last night facing ever increasing competition from the likes of Disney. Now Apple, can't count out HBO, AT&T, can't forget that Game of Thrones. Casey, the st streaming landscape has changed. I, I don't know if I buy uh, Reed Hastings' argument that all this competition, Disney, Apple, it's not going to be material, he's not really worried about it, because at the same time, in this earnings report, he was saying that pricing increase of theirs, they saw some impact on subscribers. Now, I feel like if people are at all worried about how much money they're spending on streaming, there's a significant number of families out there, hello, that are going to end up having to buy Disney, like the Marvel yeah. movies, especially the tie-ins that they're going to do. If we're seeing price sensitivity now before those other services show up, aren't we going to see some when it's like Disney and Apple, I don't care about Reese Witherspoon stuff, and Netflix on top of that? So I, I've got to disagree with you somewhat. Like, I'm really bullish on disagree. what Netflix is doing. <laughs> I mean, if you look at their subscriber numbers that they released yesterday, they beat analyst uh, estimates both domestically and abroad. People are still signing up for the, the, these things in really big numbers. Um, if you look at the way that Disney priced uh, their service, for example, they did it really aggressively. And I think that's because even they are seeing it as more of an add-on. Even Disney is assuming 
that for the foreseeable future, it, you're going to have Netflix and something else. And I think that if you're uh, the average streaming family in America, Netflix is going to be the last thing that you cut because I don't care how big of a Disney fan you are, there are still more than enough cartoons to keep your kids happy for the rest of their, their childhoods, right? Okay, like, okay. They, they just have such a head start. Yeah, yeah, if you're a family. But what if you're a 23-year-old former D&D playing trench coat wearing nerd, right? Like, which one yeah. of these do you have to have? You wanna watch The Mandalorian, right, from the Star Wars universe, maybe you wanna get your, uh, your Avengers, or at least former Avengers fix, keep up with your Marvel universe. Do you really need Stranger Things, or can you crib that password from somebody else? I mean, I'm sure we're going to see a lot of password cribbing, and I have no doubt there are going to be some Marvel fans who are, or Star Wars fans who are going to be subsisting on a diet of Disney Plus alone. <laughs> but I think if you just sort of zoom all the way out to the aggregate, you just look at the breadth of content that is available on Netflix. You look at the absolutely insane level of debt they have taken on to finance all of the production for shows, everything from reality TV series, docu-series, even some kind of light sports stuff, um, feature films, series, kids stuff. Like, yeah. they've just sort of covered the waterfront. And if you're Disney, like, I think you're just going to see them continue to be a little bit gun-shy about taking on that much debt to, to sort of enter an all-out war. It, well, here's, what, here's what I think. I think it's about the library and the impact, if we see it, in the battle between particularly these two, but, but all of them when it comes to Netflix, it's domestic, right? Because uh, yeah. in, internationally, it's not clear exactly how much Disney's gonna be able to expand out with all of its content, and Netflix, with kind of its clean slate, pure digital strategy, just has so much room to run there. But domestically, eh, I don't know. All right, now, time for Fort's Figures. Maybe we'll call it something else, because that sounds a little scandalous. Here are some of the numbers that caught my eye this week. Siri has the first. Take it away, Siri. $1.8 billion. Uber's total losses in 2018. 2018 for Uber, $1.8 billion. You know, Lyft had about a billion, $99 million, about half that. Uber's got a lot more revenue than Lyft does. Uh, I don't know. Like, Uber, Casey, getting ready to go public pretty soon. I feel good about their model versus the other ones. Like the fact that they've been able to rehab their reputation this quick. They're like the they're like the Tiger Woods of tech. <laughs> Maybe for you. I still won't use Uber. I, I just have a longer memory, it. man. I, I, I'm, like, I'm like sticking with Lyft. Again, no saints in capitalism, but uh, it hasn't been you know, that long since Uber executives were stealing people's medical records. So, you know, look, they, they clearly have a differentiated business. They've moved into this micro-mobility stuff with bikes and scooters. The Uber Eats business like seems like it has some promise. Um, you know, on the other hand, all Uber has ever done from day one is lose a ton of investor money. So, like, I'm open to the idea that they become some huge runaway success story, but, you know, you can only lose $2 billion a year for so long before you start to look like a failure. Good point. Siri, let's have the next number. $6.99. The price of Disney's new streaming service. All right, we were just talking about this, but uh, price. Does it matter with... There's the Mandalorian. Man, I miss Boba Fett. I'm still upset about the Sarlacc. <laughs> Does price matter? Yeah. I 
yes, I think it matters in a huge way. I think it was really smart of Disney to price it this low. I think it becomes a no-brainer for a huge uh, number of families. And of course, once you get those folks hooked, you can uh, increase that number over time. I wouldn't be surprised if we were all paying 15 bucks a month for Disney Plus by 2025. <laughs> all right, perhaps, perhaps. Siri, give us the next number. 996. The overtime work culture Alibaba's Jack Ma supports. Mm, somewhere Ariana Huffington is having a heart attack over this. Casey, wh where are we in this, you know, work hard versus work smart thing? I mean, I was just with Basecamp's CEO not long ago. He's in the work smart camp. But honestly, Silicon Valley and startup life has always been about that grind, isn't it still? Oh, sure. Uh, you know, that said, there are some Silicon Valley entrepreneurs who will tell you that they live in fear of competing against China precisely because they have, you know, these folks working uh, that hard. Um, you know, at small startups, of course, it's not uncommon to work 12 hours a day, six hours a week. Uh, I also don't think it's sustainable, though. I don't think it's like where we should be uh, aiming the economy because I do think it, you create a lot of burnout and a lot of other unfortunate side effects. Um, you know, it makes me think, in the early days of online publishing, you're at The Verge, which is, you know, at the pinnacle of uh, the, the digital uh, consumer uh, cultural conversation around tech. Early days when blogs were first starting out, man, people were pumping out 20, 30 stories a day, pretty much every day of the week, including weekends. Was it worth it? Um, it was not sustainable, you know, oh. I mean, like I've been at The Verge for six years and I remember working a lot of like six day weeks and it was really tough. And, you know, now fortunately, like we've grown and we're in a position where, you know, we can all have normal lives. Like, of course, you always look back and romanticize the time when you felt like you were in a foxhole with your buddies, like working as hard as you can. But no, I mean, it's like most people over a long period of time, like they want to have weekends. They want to have evenings to themselves. They want to have families and lives. That's right. You were riding uphill both ways. Yeah. Siri, the final number. 43. How many days Tesla's pivot to an online sales only model lasted? Um, I mean, this was <laughs> a little bit crazy. It, it feels like it was shorter than 43 days to me, but you never know with Elon Musk, right? I mean, he just seems to say whatever. And uh, thus far, he's been able to get around, uh, away with it because he's brilliant and he actually builds stuff, right? Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, I think if you're if you're a Tesla fan, uh, you probably love the hardware, and either you uh, just sort of love uh, Elon's whims, or you've decided you're going to put up with them. Uh, it's like certainly the least boring company in tech, right? There seems to be a major reversal or piece of news every three days. But, you know, I'll say as somebody who has visited those showrooms and like had a chance to check out cars that are there that I personally can't afford, uh, you know, I'm glad I had the opportunity. And I, I think it's probably going to be a successful model for them. I like a showroom. I, I do. Um, yeah. Now, granted, I'm over 40 now, so my opinion doesn't matter. But I feel like if, if I'm going to spend tens of thousands of dollars on something, I want to talk to somebody. Like, I want somebody to either appreciate or blame uh, based on my experience with that thing. Some place to send other people that's not just a website or an app to, to, to replicate the experience. I, I wonder, and we've seen this with Warby Parker now and, you know, all these other, Amazon, all these other companies where the whole premise was this is going to be a, a digital experience. Now saying, ah, maybe we do actually want to see you. 
Um, yeah. You think that holds for Tesla too? Yeah, I mean, like, I, you know, I, I've bought a pair of shoes online, uh, but I can't imagine buying a car online, right? Like, you think about the the whole experience of owning a car, like, you want to, like, look at that trunk with your own eyes and sort of imagine how much stuff can fit back there. You want to feel how comfortable those seats are. There's just so much about buying a car that you're never going to be able to replicate online. So even more than a Warby Parker, it just seems like uh, an, an automobile manufacturer is going to want to have a show. Room. Seems like a no-brainer to me. Yeah, absolutely. Another no-brainer, having Casey Newton of The Verge on Fort Knox. Man, I appreciate <laughs> you joining me today here. Uh, subscribe to Casey's daily newsletter, The Interface, available on The Verge. Make sure to follow him on Twitter, at Casey Newton. And now, finally, as we close out this week's show, here are a few articles that got my attention. Number one, cryptic messages like, Big Brother is watching were accidentally hidden in tens of thousands of Facebook's Oculus Touch VR controllers. Yes, Facebook, the company that's been under fire for supposedly tracking people a little bit too closely, targeting ads a little bit too nearly, said Big Brother is watching in its VR environment. It was supposed to be just a joke, but haha. I don't think everybody was laughing at that one. And Netflix CEO Reed Hastings departing Facebook's board as the company continues to pursue its own interests in video services. If you have to wonder, if Disney's Bob Iger is going to be next to go on Apple's board for similar reasons, I don't know. I mean, to me, Apple has been trying to live on both sides of this. On the one hand, they say we're really, really serious about this individual uh, video strategy, original content. On the other hand, they seem to be saying, but we're not so serious that it's a threat to Disney. They're going to have to decide which one it is. And finally, what to watch. TED Talks kicking off in Vancouver this week with speaker lineup including Jack Dorsey, Adina Friedman, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, among others. Um, TED's got to continue to be careful. They were so viral in the beginning. Now I feel like there's extra pressure on the people who are doing TED Talks to deliver. Of course, I'm sitting here in Adina Friedman's house, the NASDAQ. I'm sure she's going to do a great job. Great job, Adina. All right. <laughs> That's going to do it uh, for us here on Fort Knox this week. We're off next week for spring break, but be sure to tune in Wednesday, April 31st, for the next episode. See you then.